What's the inside track of regulators and consultants on value for money? In today's VFM podcast, we chat to Amanda Latham to discuss her take on VFM and anything else to do with pensions. Welcome to VFM, the pensions podcast. This is our fourth episode. Uh, joining me this week, as ever, is my fabulous friend and head honcho of Schuler PR and Policy, the man who puts the height into heightened sense of anticipation. It is, of course, Darren Phil. Thank you, Nico. And it's an honour, a pleasure. It's never a chore, but it's sometimes a bore <laughs> to once again have a half an hour or so chatting to my friend and podcast co-host, Nico Aspinall. So, the clock's ticking, Nico. Not, not long now to the much-anticipated DWP consultation on value for money. Mm. Do you think we'll need to sort of wrap this podcast up when, um, you know, that consultation is published? Or do you, do, will it come up with all the answers? Oh, uh, well, uh, well, it sounds like it's going to come up with all of the questions. Yeah. So, yeah, I think uh, we've managed to get 330 of you downloading so far. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I think we're going to be in it for the long haul. I think... There's so many more interesting people to talk to, there and there's going to be a lot more talk about VFM coming up. So, uh, yeah, no, I think we've got a few more weekly episodes, haven't Excellent. we, Darren? wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I wanted an update from you, actually. Um, so so last week we talked about uh, Eric Satie's Nocien number no. one. Yes. Uh, have, I, you, have you made a start? I did try to edit that out of the podcast recording, <laughs> but failed abysmally. So um, I had my weekly piano lesson on yes. Monday, and um, I sent the um, musical score that you you, you kindly forwarded to me with these with the instruction to my um, tutor that I, I have to learn this yeah <laughs> and and to, so we started off the um, I do I do the lessons via zoom or, or google meet or whatever and she said I'm intrigued why do you have to learn this and I said I've got stitched up by my mate on this podcast I'm doing um but I, we, we started it we did, we did the lesson on it um and yeah I think um could well be in a position to you know have a have a bit of a demo at some point you know? so I'm not going to commit to time frame you know um but you know when I feel confident when I feel ready I think I I, I might well do that I did try to sort of say you know surely I'm paying you all this money uh, piano tutor could you just sort of you know do me a, a version that I can sort of pass off as my own but um, she wasn't having any of that unfortunately Anyway, enough of that. Let's move <laughs> swiftly on. Um, we're both delighted to be joined um, by Amanda Latham, um, formerly of the Pensions Regulator, but now of Barnet Waddingham fame. Thanks very much for joining us, Amanda. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Nico. And I have to say, I am enjoying being the first guest on your podcast that isn't called David. So that's really exciting. <laughs> we can call you David if that's easier. <laughs> uh, so at Barnet Waddingham, Amanda is responsible for the development and delivery of uh, policy, strategy and specific business area policies on strategic issues. Uh, you were previously at TPR, the Pensions Regulator, in policy and stakeholder roles, covering sustainable finance and investment, trustee standards, DB consolidation 
consolidation and collective DC schemes. So I'm sure there's a lot we can talk to you about. <laughs> there was a lot of years there, so I did, did manage to get involved in quite a lot of different policy areas, that's yeah. sure. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, the first thing we do is talk about the news. And uh, as guest, Amanda, we can give you first first drawer of the cards. Uh, what have you brought in for us today? So the the article that I wanted to talk about this week, or it's a series of articles that we saw come out late last week with an investigation from The Guardian around carbon offsets. And oh. given sustainable investments, an area that I really focus on at the moment, mm. I think this is quite an interesting one to have a think about. I mean, the specifics of the investigation was around uh, offsets that are uh, to protect forested mm. regions and, and rainforests, and uh, the suggestion was that they're not particularly effective. And then there was further sort of discussion with a number of climate scientists on both sides of the divide, those who felt offsets were absolutely necessary or had a good purpose and others that felt that those were like a licence to pollute and, and wouldn't help the yeah. sort of net zero project, mm. if you like. So really, really interesting debate and really uh, quite balanced in terms of presenting the, the sort of scientific uh, discourse and, and, and what people are thinking about this. But I think there's some really interesting academic work in this space as well. Like around the same week, I think, I saw a paper from um, the Smith School at Oxford University and they were talking about how do you, like what approach should you take to offsets? Mm. And they had a series of, of principles that I think are really, are probably very important when we think about offsetting, particularly from an investment perspective. So yeah. thinking about across a portfolio, which is maybe quite different from thinking about it for a company. But it, it sort of goes in a, in a hierarchy where you should look to avoid emissions first, then reduce the emissions that you have, changing your activities so that these emissions are reduced or maybe changing what you're invested in, substituting sources of emissions, so maybe going towards renewables away mm -hmm. from fossil fuel-based you know, investments. And then the last two points is around sequestering carbon, so carbon capture and storage, and then very finally you've got offsets. So that's offsetting yeah. hard to abate emissions or those those ones that just are not, you know, technologically possible to, to offset. And so that's sort of the last step in the process. So I think it's quite an interesting area to think about. There's so much focus on net zero. You talked with David Farrar last, last yeah, week about yeah. net zero and the, you know, parliamentary commitment, the legislative commitment to achieve net zero, but maybe not quite having those transition plans in place yet. Yeah. Yeah, I was very confused by this story because the offsets that uh, The Guardian were talking about was essentially, it felt to me like blackmail. So essentially, here is a patch of, of virgin rainforest. The offset is we're not going to destroy it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then the controversy was that they measure a patch of rainforest that is being destroyed and they measure the rate of destruction. And that's the amount that you say that you're offsetting and the measurement was done badly. But that kind of first pass, I mean, this isn't sequestering any new carbon, isn't right. it? Um, it's just it's just blank mail. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was I was I'm, I was really worried about this. Not just because the offsets like, academically were potentially miscalculated, but just I think the common conception of like reducing carbon dioxide emissions just didn't it just didn't resonate yeah. with this kind of activity. It's sort of um, yeah, sort of almost like a form of greenwashing in a way. You know, um, like we, we we sort of have to be careful when we talk about greenwashing and stuff. Yeah. But I think we have to call it out when we see it. Um, I think, um, Amanda, I, I really liked how you characterised the sort of hierarchy of considerations and mm. interventions. And I think, um, you know, if you're going to offsets as the, the first port of call, you know, you should be taking a long, hard look at, at what you're doing. Um, there might be a role for them to play. Um, but again, you know, from what I'm aware of, you know, not all offsets are equal, are they? Yeah, you, know, yeah. you can get quite different sort of impacts and 
you know, um, there's probably some bona fide ones out there, but there's ones like you describe, Nicola, yeah. which don't really cut the mustard. And I think there's other things to think about, especially as an investor, thinking about offsets. This will apply to companies as well, but what are those offsets doing? I mean, it might well be that swift growing conifers sequester the most carbon the most quickly but of course they have terrible impacts on biodiversity and and also land management flood risk and and, and other things like that they can all do so displace communities they can displace farming communities and and that kind of thing and and and, you know that that's an area to really consider is those social impacts alongside what is the sort of carbon offset value or carbon sequestration value of the project and, and, and for me, on, on some of this, there's such a rush to make commitments to be seen mm. to be doing good. Actually, you know, there is a risk that people aren't doing it properly. And I yeah. think it's better to take your time and do it properly and do it well. Well, so I, yeah, so I, I slightly disagree. I think, I think there are things that you can do badly quickly, which uh, in the long run, you know, they're OK. Yeah. And then there are things that you can do badly quickly, which in the long run are worse than you having not done anything at all. Yeah. And I think the big risk here is that you kind of have this crutch. Um, so uh, shout out to Danny Coombs. Daniel Coombs was, uh, uh, worked for me when I was at the People's Pension. Uh, and he gave me the phrase of the indulgences culture, uh, which refers to the Catholic Church in the medieval period. You can go and do the sin but then you pay for your penance. <laughs> so, you you know, if, if it's not preventing you from doing the sin of carbon dioxide emission mm. reduction mm. Uh, and you're just leaning on this crutch of, you know, there's some rainforest that we're protecting, then we're nowhere along the journey at all. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with that. I think I can add just a tiny bit more thinking because we've we've done this at Barnett Waddingham. This is for a company, not for mm. a, for an, a series of investments or a portfolio. But the way that we approached this, we came up with our own you know values and principles around what we wanted to do, and we thought we're a UK-based firm. The vast majority of our emissions are coming from the UK, so we went with the principle of offset as close to source mm-hmm. as you can. Yeah. So we've gone with, a, a, we, you know, our environmental management um, lead, she, she investigated a number of different projects that are all in the UK and, and landed on a, a willow tree plantation in the Lake District where mm. the trees are grown. They, once they reach the end of their sort of growing period, they're sold into the construction and furniture manufacturing industry. So that's kind of the idea around that is that that's almost permanent sequestration, there would be potentially some loss if there's, you know, fires or things like that, uh, that burnt down a house that was built with that. But that's very, very unlikely. And at end of life in construction projects, now wood is actually recycled. It's no longer sent to landfill and burnt, which which is what used to happen in, in the past. So, you know, it's thinking about those things in the company space from your own you know, perspective, what fits in with, with your firm. Yeah. And, and the way we see this is by offsetting, we're motivating ourselves to, to reduce our emissions over time. And we've actually offset our, some of our scope three emissions as well. We found that yeah. our commuting emissions was much larger than our scope yeah. one and two combined. Mm-hmm. So yeah. now we've calculated, we, we've started offsetting that in 2022. So I think there are different reasons that you might use. And, you know, you can think of positive reasons as, as well. But you're absolutely right on the brainwashing point, Darren. You need to be very careful about what you're saying that this does. Yeah. And whether you're carbon neutral or net zero. And I think those are different things. And there's a, mm-hmm. maybe a lack yeah. of understanding uh, around what that actually means. Yeah, I think these are topics that we're going to be coming back to many times I over think, the coming episodes, and possibly even in this episode. Uh, so let's let's move on. Darren, what's your news item? What's piqued your interest? This yeah, week? so, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to sound like a bit of a broken record on this, because, um, you know, I think in the last couple of podcasts, I've talked about, um, you know, the 
PLSA's retirement income mm-hmm. standards mm-hmm. and some research from Hyman, um, not from Hyman, some Hargreaves, apologies, Hargreaves, um, <laughs> you know, that was, was talking about, you know, people being on track for, you know, a decent retirement income and all that type of stuff. And and we and this week we had the government response to the um, Work and Pension Select Committee report that was looking at ad- adequacy and the headline in professional pensions <laughs> was government response to WPC report bleak and dangerous, which I thought, you know, blimey, you know, uh, having bleakness and, and dangerousness, if that's a word in pensions, is, is, is quite an interesting one. But I think, um, you know, at the, at the heart of the matter, we, we, we had a, a, a 2017 review into automatic enrolment. You know, it made some, you know, some sensible, you know, not not major recommendations, yeah. you know, to sort of improve the system, get more lower earners in, um, you know, start the auto enrolment contributions from age 18, um, and, and to abol- um, to get rid of banned earnings, you know. Yeah. So, so this isn't sort of groundbreaking stuff. It's just sensible evolution of the policy. Um, we've talked in this podcast before about tensions between Treasury and DWP. Um, <laughs> you know, um, and 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 it's just like the, the government has said they'll implement the conclusions of the review by the mid twenty twenties. You know, if they don't start legislating for it soon, yeah. it ain't going to happen by the yeah. mid twenty twenties. Yeah. And you know, I've seen sort of quite a lot of commentary around some of this. And you know, there is a debate around should you be increasing contributions and that in the middle of a cost of living crisis and all that. I, I totally get that, and that's a healthy debate to be had. But this stuff takes time to implement. Yeah, yeah it takes time to legislate. It, ta- it takes time to update systems. It takes time to communicate people. And and what we want is a timetable. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, um, you know, I, I've I've been there. I've done this. I've got the T-shirt. You know, the the, the the battles between DWP and the Treasury when it comes to tax relief and the impact on the scorecard um, is probably driving driving this. So it's yeah. sort of short-term policy making versus, you know, long-term policy making, which you know goes to the crux of some of the issues that we have in our our pension system. Yeah, yeah. Uh, terrifying, isn't it? So, uh, yeah, this bleak week... And dangerous, bleak and dangerous. Bleak and dangerous. Whose quote was that? Well, I, I'm just looking at the article here. So, um, you know, um, a colleague of yours, I think, Mark um, Futcher, um, uh, argued it was dangerous. And um, Hyman's Robertson's partner, Catherine Fleming, was... Um, oh, the, the actual quote was fairly bleak. Oh, OK, yeah, they dropped the fairly. <laughs> I, find that, I find that really interesting when you compare it to what happened in Australia with the implementation mm, of the yeah. superannuation system there, because in Australia in the early 1990s, we had a recession. Mm. Um, we had what was, uh, to quote Paul Keating, the recession that we had to had to have. And, and, and that was the time when the superannuation... Uh, policy was was being put in place when the negotiations were happening with the unions and with the employers and um, what happened at the time from memory and I was very young but you know adults have spoken to me about what happened at the time the unions and the workers agreed not to have a pay rise for a yeah. number of years and those pay rises went to fund the the superannuation contributions up to nine and a half percent over over a number of years yeah. and that was in a sort of depressed environment where you know wage growth wasn't particularly high but that's the settlement that that, that was made so I don't think being in a in a in a downturn should be seen necessarily as a barrier to you know improving pension contributions and yeah. then pension outcomes for yeah. people. So uh, the news one news article that I brought in, I think, is more of a, an opinion piece. Uh, so Steve Webb uh, from another consultancy, oh, there's, LCP. There's, there's so look. many of them, isn't there? <laughs> uh, We're being fair not, to all of them. Right? Yeah, yeah, not, not all equally good, I'm sure. <laughs> um, so he was writing in Money Marketing, I think, yesterday of the day of recording. So um, actually Tuesday, uh, uh, talking about how to entice uh, early retirees back to work. 
Uh, so the concern raised by the Chancellor in the autumn statement around uh, 630,000 people of working age who are economically inactive uh, and seeing if there are things that the pension system could be responsible for in that. Uh, so, uh, you know, I guess it's now going on nine years since Freedom and Choice, uh, which, which oh, would, would have surprised Steve uh, at the time. So um, maybe there's a little bit of trying to close a stable door here after the horse has bolted. Uh, but some options on the table were reforming those those rules, uh, but also potentially giving tax breaks to people wanting to return back into the work wow. system. Um, my sort of sense was, you know, this is potentially the golden generation. Um, if they can look at any kind of DB uh, and see DC as a cash pot, it's going to be it's going to be difficult to pull them back into the workforce. Yeah, okay. uh, and of course, we probably want pay rises from a, a competitive labour market. So certainly, there's there's a there's a very clear argument for the the skills of older workers uh, and needing not to lose them and retain them. But once they're gone, I mean, like, really? Can, what can it's we do? Difficult to get work, isn't so, it? yeah, I thought that was quite an interesting little thought piece to bring in. Yeah, and I think um, the, you know, we'll probably come on to talk about at retirement and freedom and choice and all of that type of stuff. Um, if not in this podcast, then certainly in future ones and stuff, but I think we will do it in this one as well. Um, but I, it just shows that, you know, policy making for political expediency ahead mm. of an election especially in the world of pensions, can have such massive, you know, implications. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that the, the system before was the correct one. I think forcing people to buy an annuity, you know, had all sorts of issues. Um, not least is it made annuity pricing, you know, a pretty lazy. Um, and, it, and it was reliant on people shopping around and, you know, they weren't getting value uh, for money. Chopin around. Ch- Chopin around, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah we, you know, we need to get that in again. Because uh, I delivered it so well last yeah. week. <laughs> you know. Um, but, yeah, so... so um, but actually, it just shows the need for consensus and long-term thinking when it comes to, to pensions policy. So, um, Amanda, you know, you've, you've started, um, you know, with, with quite a punchy subject on offsetting and stuff. <laughs> but let's let's wind you back in a bit, yeah? Um, you know, how did you get into pensions? And, you know, when did you join the pensions regulator? And just tell us a bit about your time there. Sure thing. So, I mean, the pension, the, my, my time at the pensions regulator, I have to admit, was a result of geographical convenience. <laughs> so, to be absolutely honest you with you... You wanted to live in Brighton. <laughs> I, I, no, no, I'd, I'd, lived, I'd lived in Brighton for, 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 since I'd moved to the, to the UK. It was, um, I went there for a week, I spent some time walking along the seafront and I thought I was on a movie set. I thought they piped the sound of the seagulls in to make it sound more <laughs> like the seaside. Um, so I just thought, right, this is home. I'm, I'm staying here, and, and that's where so I ended up. Yeah. I love Brighton. Yeah. And yeah, just you know, it's always felt like a, just a comfortable place to be, where everyone's just being themselves. And um, I really focused my early career, and you know, my undergrad, and all my interests when I was younger was around really environmental policy, mm-hmm. politics, and law, mm-hmm. and also the social side of, of things as well. So like things like employment law and and those kind of, of issues. So making things better for people in general. So I guess money and finance wasn't really an area that I was particularly fond of. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, as an undergrad studying law and having to do four years of, of corporate law and just feeling like I was learning how to get as much money out of other people as possible, yeah. it just didn't feel like, you know, the right thing for me. So I worked in a lot of a number of different policy areas in different areas of government, and I can I can run over those briefly in a moment for you. But uh, the pension regulator sort of came up at a time when I was between jobs. I was signed on. I went into the job centre. 
I spoke to my benefits uh, consultant or benefits officer and, and he said, you know, what are you thinking of? Like, what, you know, I've got a few things here on the list, but there's not much around that suits your skill set. And I was like, actually, I've seen this role at the pensions regulator and I'm pretty sure, you know, this is mine. And he's like, yep, do you want to do a practice interview? I was like, no, I think I've got this nailed. <laughs> so I went in and, and I luckily enough uh, managed to convince them that I, I could work in, uh, in pensions policy when my background had been all environmental and, and sort of health policy areas. So uh, I started there in the stakeholder team, so working with the executives on going out and speaking to people like like yourself, Darren. Yeah, I'm sure I probably had phone calls from you saying, what the blooming hell have you said in the press? I don't think, I feel like that would have been much later on in, in my time. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, familiar from anyone who's worked with Darren. <laughs> and then I, I, I moved into the, the policy team initially working on, on, with D, on, on DC and then uh, after a number of years working on, on defined benefit as well. And, and throughout that, picking up the work on what's now sustainable investment, but initially mm-hmm. it was um, the K review of, of UK equity markets yeah. through the pensions lens. And then we had the Law Commission review of fiduciary duty. And each of these sort of uh, cross-government efforts, I was providing information from the pensions regulator and, and helping support those other organisations with understanding our industry and, and particularly the investment yeah. chain. So then that led to quite a lot of work uh, alongside DWP colleagues, putting legislation in place. And you spoke to David Farrow last week about yeah, some, of the, yeah, some of the work we did. You worked with him closely, did you? Very know? closely. David's one of my favourite uh, pensions uh, pensions cousins, I guess, like in, <laughs> in the industry. So, yeah, we, we met over email and we used to email each other about loads of different things. This, this was around the time of the Paris Agreement. Right, okay. And so um, we sort of shared thoughts and ideas and, and, and just basically doing a lot of knowledge sharing and we went to a PLSA conference and finally managed to meet in person and I guess that's the start of a, a <laughs> wonderful friendship from there on so yeah we got to work really closely together on on implementing all of the uh, sort of uh, investment governance regulation that, that we're now dealing with today yeah so it's all your fault it's, it's a combination between our last two guests and of course yeah, we, did, yeah. <laughs> we did a significant amount of we thought a significant amount of engagement with industry but as we've both I think talked about Later, um, we maybe didn't get the message out in time to get people to actually, uh, so to get consultants and managers to really know that they were going to need to do those implementation mm. statements and to really get that data flowing. That's right. taken a bit longer than I think we thought would be the case. But yeah, no, really exciting stuff to work on and yeah. feel like you were setting things up for a more sustainable future, which is, of course, the area that I cared much more about. Yeah. And um, pensions regulator? You, the, the, the bright lights of London attracted you. You wanted to carp in, looked into London a bit more and moved to Barnet Waddingham. So I used to do two or three days a week in London anyway, sitting in, in DWP's office, because alongside working with David on investment governance, I was also working with um, other teams on the Collective Defined Contribution Framework mm, and also the yeah. DB Consolidation Agenda and the yeah. Super Funds Framework. So that involved quite a lot of time in London anyway. Um, and then uh, I guess my theory around the investment chain and sustainability is look at the smallest point in the chain. That's where you can potentially find the nodes to create systems change more, more swiftly than you might if you focus on 30,000 trustees. If you focus on 20 investment consulting firms, maybe you can get more change to happen there. So I was quite keen to shift where I was in terms of um, getting a lot closer to practice and maybe being able to influence a, a bit more change. And that's been, um, the timing's been great because in 2020, we had the Investment Consultant Sustainability Working Group set up that was a sort of brainchild of Luba Nicolina and, and Deb Clark. 
and then bringing those that group together and being able to collaborate around driving forward sustainability in terms of things we can produce ourselves, yeah. but also speaking to government, <coughs> speaking to policymakers, regulators, and trying to help to move those things forward as, as fast as we can. Yeah. And uh, good experience? You, you enjoy working in the consultancy? Absolutely, yeah. No, it's fantastic being able to especially on the sustainability side, right? So a lot of this is new. Mm. It's not doing triennial valuations that we've done for, you know, decades. It, it's, it's completely new stuff. It's, a complete, it's ambiguous. It's um, a challenge intellectually to think through what the right answer is. And we know we're not going to get the right answer today. Yeah. We can get yeah. the right answer yeah. for today, but that's going to change as more information mm. flows, as we get more of the scientific models into those financial models. And it does, that's just what makes it exciting yeah. to get to work with clients on an area that, is new and we're all having to find a solution together yeah. and it's the right like find the right solution for that a client. pensions pioneer yeah. <laughs> sustainability <laughs> pioneer. sustainability yeah. it's, it's, it's alliteration i like a planet <laughs> planet pioneer so um let's let's try and segue to the topic of our podcast and value for money um, just, I guess, sort of general question, what's your thoughts on kind of value for money in, in, in pensions? And then maybe I've got a specific question about sustainability and climate change, but maybe you, you, can, you can take those as you will. Sure thing. So I think we've had some really, I've, I've, I've listened to your back catalogue and yeah. I massively recommend that to, to anyone else with Thank an you. interest. That'll be the quote we... Uh... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's nice to be to, to, to be recognised that we've got a back catalogue. Yes. We, 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 we've reached that sort of esteemed status now. Yeah, I don't know that the catalogue has three pages, but yeah. uh, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's growing. It's growing. But, so I think what I want to do is, is build on what I've already heard from, mm. from yourselves and, and from, from David and David. I think there's some, I very much, I think all of the, the issues that I've thought about over the years have really been brought out and both sides of that debate, right? Is it about engagement? Is it about inertia? I think one of the key things that I think about when I'm thinking about how policy has been made in this area and how people are responding and how providers are responding is that the vast majority of those people, if not all of them, are in the top few percent of income percentile. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're comparatively very wealthy compared to the, the vast majority of everyone else who are the members of the pension scheme. And I think there's really been a tendency to design policy, to design products and design pensions that work for people who have, let's say, money to save, disposable income. They're not worried about choosing between heating and eating. And, yeah. and as the cost of living crisis hits, and this isn't something new, this has been happening and building for at least since, I don't know, 2018 when I started being a, a trustee and non-exec director at AGK in West Sussex, Brighton and Hove. This is something we were hearing about back then, and that's, yeah. so it's not a new issue. So that's who these things really need to work for. They don't need to work for people on higher incomes who can afford advice, who can you know, work their way through things. They need to work for, for, for everybody, and everybody is, is probably everybody except the top few percent yeah. of, of income earners, so except the people that are designing everything around yeah. this. I, I, I agree with you on that. Um, I think the really scary thing uh, is that because the employer buys the pension, the decision makers are that top one, two, three percent yep. of earners. So it, it is very difficult in our current structure of the market to get a system which listens to the other 97, 98 percent, right? Yeah, you don't always have, you know, you, you shouldn't have a huge misalignment of interest, yeah. but you don't have a perfect alignment of interest because the purchase of the product is different from the beneficiary. Yeah. And yeah. I think an interesting example of this is if you look at Nest's research. So Nest have tried, they know they've got the public service obligation, their members are everybody in the UK 
potentially. And they've done a lot of research with people, tried to work out how to design defaults that will work for people. And they put those designs out into the market and you've got, you know, cash in, in the younger members' pots. And everyone in the industry goes, well, how ridiculous. That's not how I would design a pension scheme. Yes, it's not how you would design a pension scheme. But it's what's come from the research with the people who are actually going to be the members of that scheme. So I'm not saying that's definitely the right design or that's not the right design, but I think that reaction from the pensions industry of sort of being quite disparaging about that design is is kind of uh, very indicative of, of this issue. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there were nuances. So I was involved in a part of consultation. Oh. 2009? Yeah. You say Pardo, I say Pada. Oh, there you go. <laughs> let's, let's blow the whole thing up. Um, where we were talking about just this very point. And I was, and they said, look, this is a sort of communication frame and we want to make sure that uh, younger workers are um, not worried about volatility in their parts. Um, and, you know, my and uh, David Blake's reaction in this consultation, you know, round table was, well, don't talk to me about pot value at all talk to them about the income that's going to be generated in retirement at 22 23 you can lose 50 percent of your part and that income is based on your future contributions and future actuarially determined assumptions so you wouldn't see any if not like a very very immaterial reduction in in, in income so my sense was there was a communications frame that they could have chosen um, and then the rebuttal, and you know, fully agree. You know, in conversation with Mark Fawcett, is like there's no money there anyway, so it doesn't matter. Mm. Right? Um, fine, right? Absolutely fine. So I think I previously uh, is it Voltaire that I, you know I, uh, disagree with them fully, uh, but supported their right to make the decision they made. Um, I think that's Voltaire. <laughs> I'm not asking you, Darren. <laughs> so I'll, I'll move on and, and, and just summarise what I've mm. been thinking about because what I've really been thinking about and to follow on from the discussions we've already had is, is really about that post-retirement space. Mm. And some of this comes from my own experience on working with the Royal Mail and, and the Communication Workers Union and the advisors that all work together to build the uh, Royal Mail Pension Scheme regulatory framework, the CDC framework. And their extensive research with, with the posties was around what did they expect out of retirement? What did they think they wanted from, from pensions? And the overwhelming response was they wanted a stable, regular income in retirement. That's what they'd like. They'd like to have an idea about what that's going to be. They'd like it to land in their bank account at a regular frequency. They want stuff done for them, don't they? Well, you're going to have other things that you worry about in your life, right? You're not a pensions expert. You just want to get on with your life, enjoy it, and and income comes into your account like it always has done for the rest of your life. And I don't think that that's beyond the pale. I think that's an absolutely reasonable thing for someone to want out of a a pension scheme. So how can we deliver that to people? And I've got an idea that's a bit... I don't know, not left field, but it, it combines a lot of things I've been thinking about recently. And So are we trademarking it here today? This is the Latham plan. No, the, I'm not saying this is a unique <laughs> idea because I just, I, I don't think it is. I, I think all ideas build on, on the things that have come before. Yeah, I don't sure. think there's any original ideas anywhere. Um, but, but really listening to David Farrer talking last week and the discussion you had on annuities and the other ways to take a retirement income, there's a lot of information that trustees and providers don't have about household incomes and things that will impact members' outcomes in retirement, right? So those are all going to impact like the right way to access a DC pension spot. So the idea that I wanted to sort of raise with you and hopefully raise with more people in the industry is, is why couldn't we have something like 
the National Pension Service. Mm -hmm. So building on the original ideas of the NHS. So let's forget where the NHS has got today and, you know, someone who's work, who lives with an NHS paramedic and used to work for the British Medical Association, the NHS is something I care deeply about and I, not great things are happening there at the moment. But if we think back to those founding principles, if we create this National Pension Service, it could be, it would belong to the people. It would provide a comprehensive service that's available to everyone. It would be based on need, not someone's ability to pay for it, and it would be free at point of use, right? So if we have that as the concept around what's this National Pension Service, and it builds from things that already exist, you know, pensions-wise and and those kind of services. But what this is really going to need to give people the good outcomes, because we don't just want to throw information at them, that's what happens already, and we know people are struggling with that. But what it would need is a whole load of actuaries to look at what people have got and to model that income over the 30 or 40 years of their expected retirement and to to, to really use that actuarial skill of long-term financial uh, modelling and to help those people work out what's the best way to take the income, right? And then that would be something that could really deliver value for people. We don't have to worry about stressing people out with choice when we know that that's not what they want to be doing. And even better, we give a role to a whole load of DB actuaries who are potentially (laughs) not going to have a whole load of DB pensions work to do in 10 years' time. So, Have your colleagues paid you to say this? (laughs) (laughs) Has has the actuarial profession paid me to say this? No, I'm constantly trying to think of ideas, right? What are actuaries going to do in the future? And helping people plan retirement income in this way, where you've got this multi-decade retirement that a lot of people are going to have, is, is potentially something that could be done. So so this is more than, a, as you say, an information service, but it doesn't go into providing sort of regulated advice as we know and love it now, or does it? Well, I think that's where we, I think we want to ring fence it away from this regulated advice concept, because I don't think this is about IFAs. This is about the the kind of modelling and long-term financial work that actuaries do, because it's thinking about mortality, it's thinking about longevity, and it's thinking about what's the best way of managing those risks and treating those risks over time. So it might be some kind of longevity pooling, uh, like you might break up your pot into different segments and a segment might be used for a longevity pooling for a certain period. You might want some for a deferred annuity at 75. You want to think about the different building blocks that make up that retirement income and you've got sort of actuarial skill at the front end helping to set out what is going to be the most optimal for this person or this household. Yeah. And yeah, household, you know, and this simple. is recognising, you know, households are gonna look very, very different in the future. They look different now. You've got multi adult income households. You might even have more than two adults with an income because you can have sort of differently constructed families. And people are living together in different ways than they have yeah. in the past because of things like costs of living. Yeah. yeah. I think I think you might be surprised at how few of the five thousand D B actuaries would be employed by by designing <laughs> by designing this and what and you know, keeping it going. Um, but look, I think I think there's a there's a great solution there. Um, I think both you and I are working with providers who are looking at post retirement, yeah. and just fundamentally, there just has not been the economics for anyone individually to kind of take that step. But I think they're all looking at that step, and then of course, they uh, collaborated to stop Nest from taking that step yeah. uh, a few years ago. So, so what you're describing well, I think that's going to come back. Well, I'm sure. Yeah, that's 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 the rebrand of this podcast, isn't it? In in, in some stage in the middle of the year. Um, But um, so, so what you're describing isn't a million miles away from the kind of Nest blueprint. 
but with a better front end where individuals might actually engage and talk about their household finances, talk about their budgeting, talk about their other parts. Um, potentially dashboard when yep. you plug it in would help this system. Certainly help, wouldn't it? You can link it to other ideas like Guy Opperman's midlife MOT. You were about yeah. to say midlife crisis, weren't you? <laughs> no, absolutely what, not. When, when he became a, a parliamentarian, that's the <laughs> drop the horses. <laughs> but I think it's those kind of things. So if if you can get people to engage earlier on with these mm. other kind of things, then when you get to the end, I mean, this is engagement versus inertia, isn't it? And it, given so much as of the policy now sort of requires some level of engagement, yeah. how can we make that as easy as possible for people? It's a yeah. very socialised fantasy future, but who knows where we get to in a few yeah. years' and, time. And would this organisation, this sort of pensions health service, um, provide product? Or would it just provide support and guidance and all of that type of stuff? That's such an interesting question. So we could really replicate the NHS approach and have a sort of nice equivalent where we could look uh-huh. at products. That's the products National could... Institute for Clinical Excellence. It absolutely yeah. is. So that, that's the, the, the specialists and experts who look at sort of medications and treatments and work out whether they are value for money. Then we've got that. <laughs> we've got that. Thank so you. we could have the equivalent <laughs> thing where products are, are tested by, you know, people with... Um, actuarial scientific sure. backgrounds rather than medical scientific yeah. backgrounds and deciding if those represent value for the for the cost of them right so that's yeah. how you can bring this all together for people yeah yeah i mean we need to uh liberate the pensions market uh in such a way that people actually have choice um because ultimately if i don't like my employer at the point of retirement if i don't like the employer um uh, product that i was put into and in their post-retirement solution uh, then I have to go essentially private, don't I? I have to go straight into the IFA wealth kind of world. Um, and so we need to be able to choose between these uh, essentially authorised master trusts who have all got some sort of level of standard that could then be compared as a post-retirement solution. And I should be able to go and pick one that I never I never had employment contributions yeah. going into. And of course, if you feed that chain all the way back, we need Popfollow's member and, and freedom of choice at the point uh, that I'm contributing as well. Um, so those were ideas that, that was the sort of rebuttal, wasn't it, that, that, that kind of Steve Webb yeah. uh, kind of came out with after freedom and choice was was trying to make sure that actually, um, you know, the employer doesn't determine whether I'm getting value for money, I should. And we lose that. We, we don't have that feedback mechanism at the moment, do we? It's a really interesting idea. And I think um, it'll be great um, for listeners to sort of email in with any sort of yes, suggestions please. and comments and stuff. Yeah, we haven't mentioned the email address, but we absolutely should. Um, I'm, I'm, I always get this the wrong way around, but it's vfmpensions at gmail.com, isn't it? Nick? If you don't know it, then... Do we have a website that, that, that we can browse? Well, um, we, we do. It's in beta form. I'm oh, just waiting it? for you to sort of, you know, pay your half of the hosting oh, is that how it and is? then it will right. go live. Like, you know. Well, by the, yeah. time, by the time you hear this, dear listener... Oh, gosh. Oh, that's, the pressure's on, pressure's on. <laughs> excellent, excellent. What will we be doing, Darren, when we when we, on Friday morning when this goes live? What will we be doing? Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> a little bit of name dropping. A little bit of name dropping. So, um, courtesy of our friends at State Street. Yes. Um, we will be um, halfway up the shard. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you shouldn't actually know they'll be live now. Yeah. We're not meant to give the location away. Oh, yeah, that's true. But we'll be halfway up the shard. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, we'll, we'll be too late by the time this goes out. Um, and and we, we, it's a conversation between um, David Cameron and Tony Blair. Yeah, which will be really interesting. Yeah. Wow, interesting! Yeah. So, yeah, very, very, not very often you get the opportunity to sort of um, hear two 
ex-prime ministers from different political yeah. persuasions. Um, no, it's a unique it, event. Yeah, um, exactly. So really looking forward to that. Um, um, the other thing I'm doing next week uh, is chairing the Net Zero Investors Conference on the 31st of January at the Stock Exchange. Um, so uh, I suspect there'll be some tickets left. Um, so lovely to see you all there, uh, talking very much about DC and um, pathways to net zero. So lots of interesting speakers there. Excellent. Ah, very good. Very good. Um, we're running out of time. Well, um, we need to talk about DG Publishing's events. We do. Um, I, that's on my list. Don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> um, Amanda, it's been absolutely fantastic um, to, to chat to you. We could have, you know, um, chatted for hours. Um, and we will probably Absolutely. continue the conversation. Um, probably um, haven't got half the points across that you wanted to, um, <laughs> but, but time is our enemy on this. Um, as we've just sort of, um, as we're running out of time, um, you know, give us, you know, give, give us a final thought. Yeah. Yeah. Give it, you know, what, what's the one thing that you would like to have said, but we haven't had got around to, to say? Well, well, to chuck into our response to the value for yes. money consultation. Yeah. We don't, we don't know what's in it yet. But we don't know what's in it, but. So we didn't get to your question about sustainability and value mm. for money, did we? So I think one of the things that we need to make sure that we include in our responses on, on value for money, value for members, is how are sustainability considerations taken into account for members? Mm. Maybe we've got policy solutions coming down the line in terms of the FCA with the uh, sustainability disclosure requirement, the taxonomy, funds being labelled for retail... Can those funds also be labelled for institutional? How can that help members at retirement yeah. understand the sustainability of, of their investments if they're staying in, invested in, into their into their retirement phase? Yeah, no, um, that's all good points actually because you know we you, it, you can't boil VFM just down to one number, you know, and and you can't just you know like yes you want good returns but you can't just go chasing returns. Um, yeah, and, and, and you've got to sort of look at. I, I, I think you need to look at some of these wider issues and how you get that into that assessment of VFM is really important. Yeah, so I, I, I guess in the rear view mirror, there is only one number that matters, and that's the returns you get. And, and we can modify that between like cash returns and the security of my income in retirement. There's that framing of what job I'm trying to do post retirement is really, really important in how we do the analysis of the returns. Uh, but we can't know those returns for another 30, 40, 50, goodness knows how many years, yeah. and therefore we're onto an input conversation. Yeah. And then absolutely sustainability, process, engagement, governance, all of those things come into the come to the fore. Um, but I, I do think that we have to separate our beliefs about what good inputs and process look like from, from yeah. the actual outcome, yeah. which is returns. Yeah, all good points, all good points. So, thank you, Amanda. Thank you for joining us. Yes, I'm sorry much. we're having to sort of wrap up now. We get feedback um, that we run on too long, Darren. So, thanks. We do, yeah. <laughs> but well, if you consistently but, but get longer. Actuaries. That's the, that's <laughs> when the actuaries. That's yeah. when the actuaries. If you're um, consistently getting longer every week. No, exactly, exactly. Um, Amanda, a huge thanks. Yes, yeah, thank been you. Really thank good you. sport, really um, interesting ideas um, and great to sort of, um, you know, learn about your career and um, your experiences and pensions and stuff. Um to our, to our listeners, thank you for listening. Remember to follow the podcast, like, share, comment, and and, and do email us with any su suggestions. Um, VFMPensions at gmail.com. Um, again, this is the third time in the pod. Yes. Um, so thanks very much to GG Publishing for hosting us in the pod. It's quite comfortable in here, isn't it? It's it actually, is. It's, it's actually, a little cold it, today. It's a little it's cold a... today, but it's 
would have been freezing outside. Yes, no, but, but thanks very much for, for DG Publishing. They've got a, a great sort of lineup of events, and mm. you know, um, I think you might be speaking at, at one of them coming up. Um, you know, um, I in, believe in so. March, I think. So, <laughs> yeah, no, which, which, which will be great. Um, look forward, look forward to that. Um, so, yeah, as Darren said, get in touch with us, uh, vfmpensions at gmail.com. Uh, like and subscribe. Chase us through your uh, podcast platforms. We are working our way through them. We are. Um, so do subscribe. Uh, next week, we are delighted to be joined by uh, Greg McClymont, who uh, many of you will know. Um, of course, he is the former Shadow Pensions Minister shadow pensions. Uh, in the uh, Ed Miliband uh, regime. Is it regime? It's the the it opposition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, of course he works now for IFM so delighted to hear I'm sure a lot about how brilliant Australia is um, scale, Amanda scale, scale. can, can authorise that conversation well, he can build on, on that that's what we started <laughs> on today absolutely uh, so until then thanks very much for listening and see you next time see you next time <laughs>